0: While we are a club deeply rooted in history, nobody nobody can ever accuse the Empire Club of not being ahead ahead of the curve when it comes to current affairs of this nation. It was only this past Wednesday that the Premier of Ontario appointed former Prime Minister Paul Martin to investigate the feasibility of an Ontario pension plan. Today's talk is about pensions. Financial security is the means to many of our necessities of life. We are a nation that is concerned with the welfare of our fellow citizens. In 1963, at this very podium, the Right Honourable Lester B. Pearson, Prime Minister of Canada, outlined his vision for the Canada Pension Plan. The Prime Minister believed that all Canadians, regardless of means, should be entitled to a basic pension, bridging the distance between dependence and dignity. To introduce our speakers today, please welcome Mr. Tom Clowett, Chief Executive Officer of the
1: TMX Group. Tom. Thank you, uh, Noble, and uh, good afternoon, everybody. Since 1903, the Empire Club has played an important role in national and international debate. If a subject matter is important, we know that at some point it's going to be discussed right here at this forum by people who really know the subject and what's going on. Now there are a few more timely issues to discuss than today's subject, our pension system. I'm truly privileged to have the chance to introduce today's speakers. Jackie McNish is a senior writer with the Globe and Mail And you'll also recognize her from her work as a host on BNN. Jackie is an award-winning business journalist. She has won six national newspaper awards and is the author of now three best-selling books. She also teaches a seminar, on Investor Rights and Shareholder Activism, at Osgood Hall Law School. And it's great to have Jackie here to share her insights with us today. Alongside Jackie, we have another familiar face to many of us, Jim Leach. Jim retired as president and CEO just a few weeks ago after more than 12 years at the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, one of the largest pension funds in the country and a major investor worldwide. Jim's career highlights include leadership roles in the realm of private equity as well as several public companies. His experience has spread across a broad spectrum of the Canadian business landscape at each phase of a company's life cycle. Jim has led a merchant bank, an integrated energy and pipeline company, and he has helped technology startups navigate through the challenging early stages of development. Both of our two guests have led distinguished and unique careers. But what brought Jackie and Jim together, and ultimately brought him here today, is a topic that is very important, the stage following your career, retirement. Jackie and Jim have co-authored a very compelling and a very important book called The Third Rail, which pulls back the curtain on the pension situation in this country. In the book They expose some sobering facts, and most importantly, they do so in a constructive manner. The pension issues inevitably impact the lives and careers of all Canadians. Unfortunately, it is also a problem that few are willing to face, and one that fewer still have the temerity to solve. Tackling this subject matter is an enormous challenge, But Jim and Jackie have done just that and, importantly, raised the quality of the discussion along the way. So with that, I will let them tell you more about the book, the hard lessons we need to learn, and, importantly, the necessary steps we need to take to work our way through this problem. Jim and Jackie, thank you.
2: we've talked about pension sitting in thrones. <laughs>
3: <laughs> thank you very much, Tom, and I would feel a bit awkward with the... Uh, but uh, thank you, uh, head table. Um, we're going to carry on this as a bit of a discussion and leave a bunch of time at the end for questions, so save up your questions. We found in previous sessions that uh, the question and answer period is uh, the people really get into it. Uh, before we kick off, I have to, it's a, a, an unabashed crass commercial on behalf of our publisher, um, he, he left uh, one of these on your table and says, if you want a place to put it, you just need to get one of these. <laughs> um, and uh, they are uh, available outside or, of course, online. Um, enough uh, commercials. The the little bit of background um, and motivation uh, for this book was... Uh, frustration that both of us had back in 2012 as we saw the pension debate start to evolve and, and felt that it was really focused in the wrong areas. It was focused on things such as pension envy. It was focused on the, this fruitless debate of defined benefit versus defined contribution and felt that, that really, this really was more a story of people uh, arriving at retirement with insufficient savings and and particularly in an environment where longevity keeps increasing um, and uh, interest rates and returns are are low. So we set out to write The Third Rail uh, to be a book dedicated or aimed at educated Canadians who are kind of, they want to engage in the debate, but they're a bit bewildered, overwhelmed, frightened by the whole subject. Um, and, And so we wanted to try and make it simple, um, it 's uh, you know one hundred and eighty pages small format large print. if it takes you three and a half hours to read it you 're kind of slow and um, uh, and it 's written as a series of short stories there are it 's not an economic tome there are no charts and graphs and uh and tables et cetera so it's it 's quite even my children said it was quite engaging and that 's a compliment um so anyway we 're you know pensions are on the top of the agenda these days. They're they're on the verge of becoming very significant election issues. They're dominating and have dominated the politics uh, and elections in the three jurisdictions that we uh, uh, call out here. That's New Brunswick, uh, the Netherlands, and Rhode Island. And, you know, as as, uh, Tom mentioned, um, we're about to... It's probably going to become an issue in the next... Ontario election, if not the next um, uh, Canadian election, and why is that? Well, it's a simple fact that you know 40% of our workforce, some seven million workers, um, will be uh, retiring in the next 20 years, and you know generally speaking, they haven't saved enough. 60% of our workforce today do not have workplace uh, pensions. Um, RRSPs have been a dismal failure. Uh, people are living far longer than they ever expected, and many of our existing pension plans are not sustainable. Um, So it's up to our business, our labor, and our political leaders to grab the third rail. We called it the third rail because that's, of course, the electrified rail in the subway that everybody is afraid to touch because you'll get killed if you touch it. Um, But it is time that our leadership does grab that third rail and start confronting this issue.
2: So Jim has talked about the leadership vacuum that exists in Canada and in many other countries. It's it is a career killer, that's the perception politically. We are starting to see this change when there are more urgent and pressing pension crises in various regimes um, that we discuss in the book. So what happens to the debate when there's a leadership vacuum? We strongly believe it's badly misinformed, and it's defined today in Canada and many other countries by pension envy. 60% of Canadians don't have pensions. The majority of those that do are public sector workers. Taxpayers feel that they, they shouldn't be there. You've got younger generations. we have got young students from Centennial College here. I wish you luck. You'll be propping up a lot of pensions of older people that if we don't change things, you won't be getting. And there's intergenerational risk there. So you have the haves and the have-nots. And the best way that I can tell you about what what this means, what that debate means and how misinformed it is, is a fable that I heard when I was in Central Islands. One of the chapters and case studies we do is in Rhode Island, which really was in crisis state. It had gone over the cliff as a result of the pension deficits. And in Central Falls, they declared bankruptcy. And it became a very ugly situation between the taxpayers and the pensioners most of them police workers fire workers and municipal workers and the taxpayers had seen their property taxes rise as the city coped to deal with this not by rolling back the benefits or creating a more sustainable pension system they cut services they raised taxes the taxpayers were done and I met this woman who had been a consultant in Russia with McKinsey & Co for years came back to her home state, Rhode Island, and said, I thought Russia was messy. This place is really messy. And she said, I heard a fable once that best describes what happened here with the pension crisis. And if you know anything about Russian fables, they love the golden fish. The golden fish is a magical, a magical creature in the fables. And the fable goes like this. Poor farmer only has one cow. It's just him and his wife feeding out a a very uh, meager existence, and one day the cow dies. He's distraught. His livelihood has disappeared. His wife says, I can't take this anymore. Stop the kvetching, go out and go fishing, and he goes fishing, and lo and behold, he pulls up a golden fish, and the golden fish says, I'm a golden fish. I can grant you any wish you want. What would you like? Please save my life, and you will get this wish. So he thinks about it for a long time, and then a Kind of a nasty smile crosses crosses his face, and he says, I know what I want. I want my neighbor's cow to die. That's the pension debate today. That is the most dominant pension debate, and the people here know this because they know that they they want to take away the the public sector-defined benefit because they don't have it. They feel that their taxpayers are only paying for it. Jim got me hooked in this book because he told me how how wrong that thinking was and, in fact, um, how the math just doesn't add up. So this is part where I'm going to hand the conversation over to Jim, and he's going to tell you why the, that farmer in Russia is wrong. <laughs>
3: <laughs> the um, the book concludes with uh, three recommendations, but I'll, I'll, I'll tackle the first one that Jackie's thrown out as a challenge, and that is this, um, as I called it before, this fruitless debate between um, defined benefits and defined contributions, and um, and one of the points we make is that we need to stop this um, uh, migration that's gone on from defined benefit to defined contribution. And why is that? Um, you know, it is irrefutable mathematically that the defined benefit structure for a pension plan is far less expensive than the defined contribution structure. Now, that's you know that is uh, uh, probably piercing a whole bunch of urban myths because in, in many uh, quarters defined benefit is bad and defined contribution is good. Um, it's really a question of where the risk is placed, but mathematically it is far less expensive to have a defined benefit plan, and the reason for that is that um, you can pool all sorts of risks, investment risk, um, the but but more particularly, the longevity risk. So in a defined benefit plan, um, such as the Ontario teachers or, or others, um, we need to save up enough money to get to the actuarial mean of, uh, of when it's predicted the people will die. If you're in a defined contribution plan, you're, it's every man for himself, and you basically have your own little account, and you must save enough money to last to the very far right-hand side of that actuarial curve. Because if you're going to live to be 105, um, you don't want to run out of money when you're 102 because the last three years won't be a lot of fun. So, it, it, so so we spent a fair amount of time in the book um, piercing that um, urban myth uh, and explaining that the defined benefit model is the superior model. However, that's not to say um, that we we defend the stereotypical 1970s defined benefit plan that was built. There needs to be a far more appropriate sharing of risk and cost as between the sponsor, a.k.a. the employer, and the employee. Um, so we talk about um, target benefit plans. We talk about hybrids. We talk about evolved plans. That's what we're talking about is moving, um, keeping the Basic structure of defined benefits because it 's so uh, efficient and effective uh, but introducing um, a risk sharing uh, concept so just some some fast statistics too about um, the defined benefit plans that we picked up in our research um, interestingly enough recipients today in Canada there are um, there's approximately sixty eight to seventy two billion dollars paid to retirees from the existing defined benefit plans. Um, those retirees pay somewhere between 14 and $16 billion in taxes. Everyone always thinks that the dollar that goes out on a pension is kind of lost, um, but they pay that in taxes. And they spend in the economy somewhere between 56 and $63 billion. Every small community in Ontario, uh, approximately 11% of the income of every small community in Ontario is the income of a defined benefit uh, pension recipient. So it's a huge um, component of our economy. One last fact before I turn it back to Jackie is in in looking at um, the defined benefit model, there's always this perception that, you know, the taxpayer is paying for this, et cetera. The facts of the matter are that around, you know, somewhere between 20 and 25% of the dollar that goes out as a pension payment comes from contributions. So in the case of teachers, half of that, so 12 and a half cents is approximately uh, 12 cents, comes from the teacher who paid in, and 12 comes from the employer. The balance, 75 uh, to 80%, comes from the investment return. So it's a very, very efficient model. The alternative is the guaranteed income supplement and the old age security um, uh, payments. And those come out of general revenues. That comes, that comes right out. Every dollar comes out of the taxpayer's uh, pocket. And right now, OAS and GIS represents the single largest line item in the federal government's budget. It's $38 billion. And by every projection, it will triple in the next 16 years. So that's what we're trying to avoid.
2: So Jim's given you some very important numbers sort of lay out the landscape. We can either um, deal with it now or deal with it later and pay more as taxpayers. Pensions are more than numbers. Pensions are about people. And what we discovered in doing our research for the three case studies, New Brunswick, Rhode Island, and Netherlands, is that it takes people to fix this problem, and it's the people who are affected by this problem. And in each of these regimes, we discovered extraordinary people outliers, mavericks, who are willing to approach this from a very different um, point of view, um, who overcame hurdles, biases, and resistance, constant resistance, to do what needed to be done. And the first one I'm gonna tell you about is New Brunswick in our backyard. Uh, New Brunswick is what we call the ground zero in Canada's pension crisis because the children of the baby boomers, they left a long time ago. This is a have-not province, resource-based. They had to leave the province to get jobs. and So we're having the pension crisis hit New Brunswick faster than any other province in the country. You layer in the, the crisis with pulp and paper and other resources, it's a grim situation. Financial crisis hits. And the, the province of New Brunswick is looking at a downgrading, I and mean, you know what a downgrade means to a government. It's just going to cost them a lot more to pay, pay for everything. The extraordinary thing about New Brunswick is that, yes, they were heading towards a cliff. They had public sector pensions they could no longer afford. The people who were the catalyst for the reform were the unions, and they worked with the conservative <coughs> premier, which is truly an extraordinary thing if you think about it. It involves two nursing, one nursing union and one hospital workers' union, where they were looking after the 2008 financial crisis at potentially, I may get my numbers slightly wrong, I believe a 60% increase in their contributions or up to a 50% reduction. In their in their benefits, so they were looking at not retiring uh, when they hoped to, and massive reduction in their benefits. So there are a lot of complicated ins and outs in terms of what they did in the in the courts and the jurisdictions. But they worked with uh, David Alward, the, the premier of New Brunswick, and they resolved this problem. And uh, David did something very interesting. He made it a voluntary uh, voluntary for the various. Um, public sector unions uh, and groups to come in on their if they wanted to rather than ramming it down their throats. So uh, it was a sort of a fairly calculated move because they knew that they needed help and if they wanted to be part of this model they were going to have to come in. It's still a fight. It still grabs the headlines in New Brunswick but more and more of the public sectors or groups are coming in and at the end of the day what do they have? They have what Jim referred to as a shared risk model if you are underfunded under the shared risk model the beneficiaries the members of the pension fund give up benefits the quid pro quo in this relationship is solvency you can no longer be underfunded you have to be fully funded there's just no wiggle room like there is today for many funds so the worker gets the security of a more sustainable uh, pension plan and uh, levers for the employer uh... to uh, temporarily suspend such benefits at cost of living if they can't afford it, if
3: they're underfunded. My uh, favorite part of the book is the Rhode Island story and the character there. Is, as Jackie said, it's about people. And the lead character is a, a young woman who's the state treasurer. Her name is uh, Gina Raimondo. Um, she grew up in a poor family in uh, Rhode Island, um, went to public school, uh, took the bus, studied the libraries, etc, went off, went to Yale, Harvard, and Oxford, came back, was a had a successful uh, venture capital operation on Wall Street. and she read in the paper about buses being uh, lined, you know or uh, routes being um, uh, closed and hosp- or, uh, libraries being closed, etc. and she said, people will not be able to live the American dream that I did um, unless that's fixed. And so she, Left her job, decided to run as a neophyte, uh, never run before, uh, on a, a, um, a platform of pension reform. She was advised against it by everybody in the Democratic Party right up to the White House. Um, but she did it, and she won in a landslide. And she produced a document called Truth in Numbers, and she held countless number of um, sometimes very hostile town hall meetings, um, explaining it in a very dispassionate way. Um, how a reform is required, et cetera, and eventually um, got it through um, their legislature, uh, even though the governor didn't necessarily um, uh, support it to begin with. Uh, interesting name. Keep it in the back of your mind. You'll probably see her run as governor, and I wouldn't be surprised if you see her in some capacity in the White House in the future. This is a, a, a real dynamo and someone who had the guts to grab the third rail with both hands.
2: One of the things we learned from meeting with uh, Gina Raimondo um, was that how she dealt with what is arguably the toughest political issue or for an employer as well uh, in the pension debate, and that is it's immoral to change the terms of the contract. And she would look the, the very angry retirees and union leaders in the eyes and said, no, it's immoral to close the schools, to stop the buses. So, It's a very interesting approach. They were in crisis. It's not going to be the same for for everyone. Um, Jim is about to give you his top three reform proposals, which truly are the heart and soul of the book. I want everyone to think about questions. You have a unique opportunity here to talk to one of the country's best experts in pensions. We've had very robust discussions with every group we've talked to, and we hope that you folks will continue that tradition, and here
3: comes the top three. So the the last chapter um, has the... um, uh, the three recommendations. Um, the very first has to do with our concern for people who are earning 30 to 100 thousand dollars a year. If they're depending on Canada Pension Plan, OAS, and GIS, they're in for a big shock, uh, in how their standard of living will change. Um, and so our our recommendation is for a modest increase in Canada Pension Plan. There are all sorts of different models that have been put forward. We mentioned one that we think works in the book, but we're not wedded to it, uh, which would see uh, contributions to Canada Pension Plan phased in over time increase from about $2,300 to about $2,900. Um, so we don't believe that that's a huge uh, a hit and is, and is basically aimed at people who are at an income level um, ab- well above the average of the um, uh, workers who who's whose employers are members of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, so it shouldn't really impact them that dramatically. Um, The second one is what I talked about before, is to stop this uh, foolhardy uh, migration from defined benefit to defined contribution, but uh, see an an evolution to the standard defined benefit program so that indeed uh, you have something that is sustainable and secure uh, for employees. And our third, really, it tries to address the 60% of Canadians who do not have workplace pensions. Um, and the, the federal government and most of the provinces are picking up on a um, new plan called PRPP, um, but we think it needs to get changed. There need to be some um, uh, different elements added to that because we don't think it will work uh, as it is. It's just another four-letter word. Um, as opposed to RRSP, which we know has been a huge failure. Um, So in this recommendation, we would see um, that uh, uh, contributions and membership would be mandatory um, because people will not save um, if if it is voluntary. Secondly, there needs to be far greater emphasis on cost control and keeping the costs of of, uh, administering and managing the pensions, which – likely means larger pools. Um, and then the third, um, which is is the fact that in a defined contribution model, you don't find out how much money you have to live until the very last day. So the very last day when you retire, you open the box, and that tells you, you find out how much money you've got for the rest of your life. Uh, we believe that, say, starting around age 40, that some portion of your defined contribution savings uh, need to get annuitized into um, deferred life annuities so that when you get to that magic day as I did 24 days ago um, you do know that you've got a certain amount that's guaranteed for the rest of your life um, and it takes that anxiety um, out of the equation so those are our three recommendations I don't think, we don't think they're terribly revolutionary this, study, this subject has been studied time and time again um, it's now time to take action
2: And with that, we're going to open up the floor to questions. I believe there are two roving wireless microphones over there, so if you raise your hand if you've got a question, please feel free. Thank you.
3: Yeah, there's, we, we spend some time in the book, not a lot of time, talking about the fact that regulatory and tax rules have really not kept pace um, with, with what needs to get done. Uh, there have been, there are some examples. They're small um, and very few of organizations <laughs> that move from defined benefit over to defined contribution and then now have moved back. And that was driven, A, by economics, but just as much by... Uh, bifurcation of your workforce. I mean, it's a huge HR issue. Unfortunately, many of the decisions, the DB to DC um, conversion, are driven out of the treasurer's office, and the HR department hasn't had an awful lot to say in it. And there's now, uh, you know, growing evidence that having a bifurcation in your workforce is not healthy. Uh, You really do set up the haves and and, and the have-nots. With regard to tax and, and regulation, yes, a lot of work has to be done. At the present time, um, you know, our RSP limit is, is, is effectively 918 18 percent, so to speak, um, and in defined contribution plans are basically limited to that. Um, in many defined benefit plans, they've had um, authorization from the tax department to go above that because contributions had to rise rise above that 9 percent level. Uh, but So that has to get balanced out and, and rationalized somewhere uh, along the way.
2: One of the things that, that we learned along the way, and we only highlight some of the reforms, but um, there are lots of things you can do with defined contributions to make them much more effective. They're all segregated or typically segregated if you're a defined contribution member, which means that you're, you're, you're paying into and, you know, depending on an inefficient system where you're paying rates of, one, two, three percent, depending on the program. And in in a low interest rate environment, you know how much of a return you're going to make on a system like that. And one of the things that other jurisdictions, for example, Britain is doing, is pooling the defined contribution plans, either for industries, sectors, or for companies. And if you pool and if you create a mini Ontario Teachers or a mini OMERS, you, you significantly reduce your fees. I mean, what are the fees, the fee rate on Ontario teachers? It's less than...
3: less than half a point.
2: Less than half a point, which is a dramatic savings. It can amount to, you know, for an individual, tens of thousands of dollars over the life, lifetime of, the, of their plan. And you pull it, you get professional management, and you spread that longevity risk that Jim was talking about. So once again, there are a lot of these programs and reforms that are out there. Are we going to act on it?
4: Do you think it
3: was a good or bad decision by the Ontario government uh, to pursue their own pension reform? Oh boy! <laughs> Are you listening? Where's Ken? <laughs> um, th- my my personal view on it is that um, it is it would be far far more efficient and effective to uh, follow our first recommendation, which is a modest increase. In the Canada Pension Plan, um, for all sorts of political reasons, that does not seem to be a road uh, to go down. Um, I think it's a second best solution. I think the the, uh, the critical mass is here that it can work, uh, but I think it's a second best solution. And my sense is that's where the Ontario government is too—that it's a second best solution. But it's a solution to a problem that they see is. Very real, and who knows what happens? You know, maybe um, other jurisdictions, other provinces, will join in. You know, it looked to me in the debate, and I'm not close to it. I'm just reading in the newspaper that Jackie writes um, <laughs> that uh, that um, you know basically all the provinces are there, uh, varying degrees, uh, debating amount and time, and so maybe they'll get together and do it themselves. But it it would be a shame um, if we have to end up there, but at least the government is realized it's a problem and is doing something about it, so I laud them for that. Thank you very much uh, for touching the third rail. Um, Jim, I'd like to follow up a little bit on what you just said about uh, amount and time for your first recommendation. Certainly we saw over 40,000 Lost jobs in the last uh, last uh, employment report. Uh, small and medium-sized businesses concerned about increasing hydro costs, things like that. The time element. Where do you think? Certainly, your book expresses urgency, but how how quickly or how how much could this be phased in over a period of time? Would you have a recommended time frame for phasing in the adjustment? I don't have one. We haven't done been privy to any studies that would show how quickly. Um, uh, it can or, or should be done, but I mean, if you pick a decade, I mean, that's probably a good starting point to say is it is it is it shorter or longer? But it's kind of around that that period of time. I, the interesting thing about pensions is you're dealing in long, long time horizons. You're, you know, you're, these kids are going to live; they got a, a better than average chance of, of uh, getting o- living till they're over 100. Um, and so you're dealing with those type of time frames. So small changes today amplify over that period um, quite dramatically. So it's a matter of getting started, and, and that's the important thing. It is so easy to kick this down the road uh, to the next administration, et cetera, and it really needs to be, you have to need to start doing it now. Twenty years ago, we were as a society saving you know around 20 to 20 and a half percent was the national savings rates today it's like five and a half I mean, that's not an, it's not enough we've got to get savings up so i don't view this as a tax this is savings and those savings get turned right back into the economy uh, as investments i mean you take a look at the 10 largest defined benefit pension plans in this country They Control around 800 billion dollars, which is invested in government bonds, um, private enterprise, venture capital, everything in this country, and and creating tons of jobs. So it's not a, it's not, you know, this concept that that will take a dollar more into CPP and it disappears into the uh, stratosphere somewhere is just ill-founded.
2: The other thing is that the reforms that we wrote about, the the two regions, Rhode Island and New Brunswick, but particularly Rhode Island, I mean, their reforms, you know, were forged in the crucible of a crisis, and you talk about Central Falls, what happened to those pensioners, they lost up to 55% of their pensions, and most of those people were retirees. That meant selling their homes, going back to work. Do we want to wait for that? Because that's when often our politicians feel that it's safe to go there, so... Do we want to wait for that? We will, we will be the ones paying if we don't.
3: Excuse me. Um, I'm speaking... You get all choked for, up on this subject. Yeah.
5: Well, I'm a member of the Freedom 95 crowd. You know. um, uh, but no, you, you, you did answer part of my question earlier, but on behalf of the kids over there, I mean, I, I've been in the investment business long enough to know that the, the real compounding is in the fourth decade. And, um, but, I mean, how, the longevity risk is, is a longevity opportunity, which you've alluded to. How big is the leverage if we get started? Because you've crawled through the plumbing of these numbers. I have to believe that longevity is a huge card asset card to play in the equation, and if people can be made more aware of that, that should help the debate to take the short-term pain, but I just have no sense of, you know, what kind of difference that extra time we're all going to have.
3: Well, you I mean it's, it's enormous. Um, if I go back to 1970, um, it, it, it's interesting, and I'll use uh, teachers as an example because I know I know those numbers. Um, in 1970. The actuarial report at the time said that teachers would would work um, uh, so many years um, and then they, they would retire for so many years and that the investment return would be such. And when you look at that compared to today, they were basically dead on with their projection on how long teachers would work. Um, and they were basically dead on on what the returns would be. And they were out by 60% on how long they were going to live on re- In retirement, I mean, they said they're going to live in retirement for 20 years, and they're living in retirement for 32. Okay, so that's another 12. You're not dying fast enough. That's the crisis. And it's, you know, I mean, it's it's interesting. You were talking about the moral debate about breaking, you know, breaking a contract, et cetera. And I I was in a a session. where there was a very um, frustrated, angry um, uh, union leader who was basically saying, "You know, but you, what you're talking about is you know breaking that contract, breaking the, the promise." And I said to so not being facetious, but I did say, um, "You know, I understand, but you also broke the contract." Yes. And there was <laughs> great excitement. And I said, "You stop smoking." And you bargained for more safe steel plants. If you hadn't done that, um, we'd be okay.
5: <laughs>
3: but I, you know, and I am being facetious. Uh, but but the fact of the matter that's very real, and that's a that's good. That's good news. We have one last question that we can take.
0: Jim, it's uh, good to see you contributing to the public sphere uh, in such a meaningful way post the magic 65 uh, retirement age uh, just a few weeks ago. And the question I'm going to ask is about the math as you've been crunching through it. Um, What happens if we just say people don't retire 65, you know, we 67, 70, 75, uh, teachers don't uh, have a plan that means that they're going to retire at 58 or whatever, Uh, you know, they retire at 60. um, What does this start to look like? Is it a crisis still?
3: Well, I mean, obviously, if people um, retire or work one more year, that's effectively two years in the equation because you've got one more year of contributions and one less year um, that you're paying out. Um, So clearly that helps uh, mathematically. And also the fact of the matter is people are healthier and they are living past or they are working past their kind of, Um, first out date. Um, Again, if I use teachers as an example, um, where they have a factor 85, they're not retiring the moment they hit factor 85. It is, you know, a a few years later. Um, As long as they're enjoying, as long as they're healthy, as long as they're enjoying their job, all the polling that we've done um, with employee groups say, I'm going to stay. I'm enjoying myself. I'm healthy. Um, I'm, I'm also seeing that in other sectors. Where even though they have a, a low factor to retire, they're staying on uh, far longer. But you know, if, if people can be encouraged to do that, if it's safe, if they're in a type of, uh, of occupation, because many occupations, you know, are pretty tough on the body, and they can't necessarily work that much longer. Uh, but if we can encourage that, that is very healthy. And generally speaking, I think most. Working people um, do enjoy uh, staying on the job. There's all sorts of uh, camaraderie and, and social benefits of that. All right. Well, thank you very much. You. Just that
0: so you sit there for a minute. Please welcome Mr. Bill White of IBK Capital to send our appreciation.
4: Mr. President, distinguished head table guests, fellow members and guests of the Empire Club of Canada, I have the pleasure to express our formal thanks to Jim Leach and Jackie McNish. Jim and Jackie, what you did today, why you did it, and how you did it helps each of us to better understand and embrace Canada's pension crises. In your book, The Third Rail, confronting our pension failures, you state, if nothing else changes, it is possible, indeed probable, that all taxpayers will find themselves burdened with the expense of rescuing and providing for a generation of marooned and financially unprotected retirees. It is without any doubt that this statement resonates with everyone in this room whether you are the taxpayer or the unprotected retiree you now know that Canada's pension crisis is a very big problem and that Jack Jim and Jackie of course have clearly addressed that for us today thank you Jim and Jackie for offering recommendations offering solutions and prescriptions for Canada's pension crises and for providing past examples of successful pension reform that have been implemented by very courageous leaders. Please join me now in a special and warm thanks to Jim Leach and Jackie McNish.
0: And just before we adjourn, um, as you may know, uh, Mr. Leach has been very supportive of our armed forces through his work uh, with the True Patriot Love uh, uh, Foundation or group. Uh, so we're delighted to have a, uh, someone here that, uh, if he plays his cards right, he'll, he'll have a pretty healthy pension himself. Uh, Mr. Uh, Aaron O'Toole, who's the uh, Member of Parliament. Uh, um, and Min, uh, Parliamentary Secretary for the Minister of International Trade, along with a group of uh, members of our armed forces, uh, members and veterans. So, thank you for being here. <laughs> uh, at your table, you'll see that we have a number of upcoming uh, events. Uh, the third installment of our Women in Power series is on Monday at the Arcadian Court. We have the Deputy Premier of Ontario and the Minister of Health, the Honourable Deb Matthews, uh, speaking. I'd like to thank uh, the TMX Group for sponsoring our event, uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers and Bill McFarland for, uh, <laughs> for uh, being our gold sponsor, IBK Capital for sponsoring our student event. And uh, as, as we've noted from the remarks today, it, it really is uh, important to have young people at our, at our events because a lot of this has a lot to do with you. So thank you for being here, and thank you, IBK Capital. I'd like to thank uh, the National Post as our print media sponsor, um, and to the Global Mail for being our future sponsor, hopefully. (laughs) Um, To Van Valkenberg for providing our AV. This meeting will be carried and aired on Rogers Television. We are grateful to them for uh, your support. Uh, We're on Twitter and Facebook, and we have a website where membership information is available. It's empireclub.org. Uh, Thank you all for coming. We look forward to seeing you again soon. This meeting of the Empire Club of Canada is now adjourned.